great worship. Well, to our chapel next door, welcome for our time in the Word, and to our venue across campus, glad to have you. Uh, to Cactus Campus, we're glad that you're joining us. And I want to say a special word to the Northridge Campus right now. We have had the wonderful privilege of having Bradley, your worship pastor, with us here this morning. And we, yep, amen. And just before we came on with you live, we all voted we're keeping him. We're not sending him back to you. So uh, <laughs> some of them are wondering, am I joking? You'll just have to find out next week. But uh, no, I am joking. It's, uh, we have amazing worship pastors here at our church. You guys are awesome in responding to them because they really only have one goal, and it's not to entertain us. I hope you know that, whether it's our traditional worship or the blend or the contemporary, whatever style it is, it's to draw you to God in submission, in, in passion, and in relationship as we worship him. That's why we call them worship pastors. And so I hope that that uh, feeds your guys' souls because, you know, ever since the Reformation, we've done church for the last 500 years the same way. And that is we do worship and then the word. Worship and then the word. So we've now worshiped and we're going to turn to his word. Now, before I pray, you might have noticed that in the bulletin or online this week that we're starting a new series of messages here at our church called 14.6. So no more suspense. Before I pray, let me tell you what this series is going to be about and why we're doing it and then we'll pray for it. It all began a couple of months ago when I was having my morning devotions where I simply read a portion of the Bible and then pray. It's not rocket science. And I was reading through the Old Testament uh, in the book of 1 Samuel that particular week. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but as I was reading 1 Samuel, all the history of King Saul and then King David, uh, this one particular passage I hit... And it jumped off the page at me. I mean, it just hit me really hard in what it was saying. The context of the chapter that I was in was reading about King Saul's son, Jonathan, and he was getting sick and tired of the Philistines picking on Israel. And so he does something kind of understandable, but completely crazy. He turns to his armor bearer and essentially says, why don't you and I just take them on? You and me take on the entire Philistine army. And let's read what happens next. This is the verse that hit, hit me in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. It says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And I got to tell you, this hit me really hard. Uh, Jonathan's logic here is full of passion. He's essentially saying, look, Israel's in a battle here, and it's God's battle. It's his show. He is the one who fights for us. And if he wants to use the entire Israelite army, fine. If he wants to use just you and me, fine. Because he's not restrained by many or by a few, because it's him who's giving the power here. That's Jonathan's logic. And spoiler alert, in the verses after this, Jonathan indeed does go over with just his armor bearer and they kill 20 Philistines right there. And then they get the rest of the Israel army and they protect Israel. And what hit me about this passage, what jumped off the page was you and I today. 
Because what hit me is that America is a resource-rich church country. We still have like 319,000 Protestant churches in America. Most of them have buildings and budgets and money and people, and we're all educated, and we have lots of gifts. And here's what hit me. God doesn't need any of that to build his kingdom, amen? He doesn't need it. He uses us. He uses my gifts and and he uses you and the resources we have, but he can save by many or by a few. And it just reminded me, it challenged me not to lean on my own resources, not to lean on all the trappings of our American culture, but to lean on God. It hit me hard that day, this one passage, 1 Samuel 14, 6. Now, Here's where the idea of 14.6 came in, and you need to listen closely, because some of you are going to think I'm weird, and I am. As I sat there reveling in this spirit-given insight into God's word, I thought to myself, and I don't know why I thought this, I think it was the spirit, I thought to myself, I wonder if there are any other 14.6 passages in the Bible that are this profound. In other words, as many of you know, the Bible is broke down into chapter distinctions and verse distinctions for all 66 books. So for any book that had more than 13 chapters, I wondered what the other 14 sixes had to say. And so I looked them all up. And before I show you what I found, I need to make two things very clear. This is really important. First, is that when I say, are they just as profound as 1 Samuel 14, 6, please understand, I believe all the Bible is profound. Amen? All of it. So I'm not suggesting that one verse is more profound than the other. I'm just saying that in my quiet time that day, this verse hit me, and I wondered, do any of the other 14 sixes, are they gonna hit me similarly with their themes? Second thing I wanna make clear is that the chapter verse distinctions in the Bible are not inspired, and they are not magical, and they're nothing even special. You need to understand that. This is not some Dan Brown novel that we're going to do here right now. Let me give you three dates that will help you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, 95 AD, 1227 AD, and 1555 AD. Pretty widespread. 95 AD uh, was at the very latest when the last book of the Bible was written. Maybe the book of Revelation. We believe that was the last book of the Bible written. Uh, It was given to John on the island of Patmos. And, And at the outside, the latest date, that would be no later than 95 AD. So the point is, is that the Bible you and I have today, which is inspired by God, given by us, given to us by him, was finished by 95 AD. We've had it for almost 2,000 years. Why is this date important? 1227 AD, you're going to laugh at this, is when we added chapter distinctions to the Bible. So 1,100 years after the Bible was complete, somebody came along and said, hey, it's kind of hard to find certain passages. Why don't we give chapter distinctions to them? And sure enough, when Wycliffe, 100 years later, translated the first Bible into English, he added these chapter distinctions. And then the verse distinctions were not added till 300 years later with the advent of the printing press. After after the printing press in 1555 AD, they added the verse distinctions. So give me a head nod that you understand what we're saying here, that, that the Bible is inspired by God, that we've had it for thousands of years, but these chapter verse distinctions we added, meaning man, it's nothing special, it just helps us find our way around the Bible. 
So with these two caveats given, that one passage is not more profound than the other, and that these chapter-verse distinctions are nothing special, I want to share with you what I found as I tracked these 14-6 distinctions, because it really was kind of profound. Here's what I found. 1 Samuel 14-6 talks, as we've seen, about God's power. You can save by many or a few. Ezekiel 14.6 says to Israel, repent and turn from your idols. I thought, wow, that's really relevant today. I mean, we have a lot of Christians today that are struggling in our 21st century culture to keep God in first place. And anytime you don't put God in first place, you're going to put an idol in first place. And I thought that, that, that's relevant today. Proverbs 14.6 says that a fool seeks wisdom, but, a man who, but only a man of understanding finds wisdom. That's a profound verse. In other words, wisdom is attained by having a little bit of understanding first that you bounce off of in order to gain wisdom. That's relevant for today. Romans 14.6 is all about the gray areas. You know, life is black, life is white, but what about those in-between areas where you don't know what to do? Romans 14.6 speaks directly to that in our lives. And then Revelation 14.6, a powerful passage that says the gospel needs to go out to all nations, all tongues, all tribes. It's all about missions. And then many of you thought the whole series was going to be about this. John 14.6, the famous passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Here's what hit me, gang. These are six amazing themes, all extremely relevant to your life today, and they all follow the track of 14.6. And again, doesn't mean that one verse is more important than the others, and it doesn't mean that there's anything magical about the verse distinctions. I just thought this would be a great series to do here at our church that as we tap into these themes for our lives today, it could do nothing but benefit us and hopefully jazz you up more about your own interfacing with the word, get you into the word more in your own life. It's gonna be a great ride in this series. So that's what we're gonna do over the next six weeks. We've called the series 14.6. God's word never lets us down. We're gonna dive into the first verse right now. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your amazing word to us. God, every single jot and tittle, as Jesus says, is inspired by you, given by you, never to be taken away. And we spend our time here, Lord, at Scottsdale Bible, plumbing the depths of your word to us. And so, Father, we're going to slow down a bit in this series, park in front of just one verse each week, and allow you, through your Holy Spirit, to speak to us these amazing themes for our lives. And so, Lord, my humble prayer is that when it comes to who Jesus is, when it comes to your power, when it comes to the gray areas, missions, wisdom, when it comes to idol worship, when it comes to these themes that that hit each of us every day of our lives, God, would you grow us up more, mature us more, make us more passionate, faith-filled followers of Jesus over the next month and a half. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So this first 14.6 that we're going to look at today is hands down the most well-known of all of them. Just about every Christian has heard it. Even many non-Christians are familiar with this passage. You'll see why in a minute. It's John 14.6. That's where we thought we would start. John 14.6. And here's the passage. 
It says, Jesus said to him, he's speaking to Thomas, as well as all the disciples here. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, before we jump into what Jesus is saying here, I need to make a couple of brief comments on how we need to approach these critical words of Jesus here and how, and I don't mean to be too down on us, but how many Christians in our modern day world have kind of messed up the use of these words of Jesus. So here's my first comment. In our modern world, and tell me if this isn't true, We have made this verse, these words of Jesus, more fighting words than inviting words that they originally intended to be. In other words, when you look close at how the average Christian quotes John 14, 6, they have weaponized it against those who are seeking Jesus and even those who are not of the same faith as us. So we usually pull this verse out when we're talking to somebody who, you know, somebody comes to us at work and says, hey, I'm kind of interested in spiritual things. So I, you know, went up to Sedona this week and I got in touch with some vortexes and crystals and, you know, this new age stuff is really cool. And we pull out John 14, 6 and we say, well, don't you know that only Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So you shouldn't be going up to Sedona. That's how we use this verse. We use it to club Buddhists, we use it to club Hindus, we use it to club Jews, we use it to club Muslims, we use it to weaponize our faith to make sure everybody around us knows that he is the only way. Now, let me ask you a question. Do I believe, as your pastor, the words of Jesus here, yes or no? Yeah. I believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You're going to see that in a minute and that he is the only way to the Father. I'm not suggesting that. It's just, it's interesting. When you read the upper room discourse, which is where these words are found, John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 17, if you read it in one setting, you will realize what I'm saying. Jesus did not give these words to be used as a club to the world around him. He used these words to the disciples to invite them into deeper faith and relationality with him. They are words that are inviting in nature, not fighting in nature. And we mess them up when we use them any other way. So hang on to that. A second rather important thing to realize about Jesus's words here, and this kind of dovetails on the first thing, is that Jesus's words here in John 14, 6, now listen, are more formational to our souls rather than formulaic in nature. They're more to be relational in our faith rather than a recipe on how to approach Jesus and live life. Formational and relational, not formulaic and a recipe. What do I mean by that? As I've watched a lot of Christians over the years, even myself at times, I have seen people take these words of Jesus and I've heard them say things like this. Well, you need to realize that that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And when you do, you'll be in with God. And then when I say to them, as we're gonna ask and answer today, What do you think he means by being the way, the truth, and the life? Here's what I hear. Well, you gotta believe the right doctrine. You gotta live a moral life. You gotta do the right things. You need to go to church, tithe, and serve. In other words, you list a bunch of things that we need to do and even believe in order to show the way, the truth, and the life. 
In other words, we develop a formula or a recipe out of Jesus's words here. And I'm telling you, those were not the intent of his words. Jesus never intended these words to be a formula or recipe for life. Listen, he's inviting us into a formational faith relationship with himself that's built upon ongoing trust and relationality. And the reason we know that's true is because it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Think about what else Jesus could have said. He could have said, I know the way, the truth, and the life. Or I'm gonna show you the way, the truth, and life. He didn't say that, he personalized it. He said, look at me guys, I am the way, the truth, and life. It's eminently personal, formational, and relational in nature. And then from that, will flow doctrine and lifestyle and all the other things that you and I believe and talk about. So these are inviting words, not fighting words. They are formational and relational, not formulaic and recipe. And with this understanding, and I wanna ask you three questions that will help us understand what Jesus is getting at here. And I want you to personalize all of these questions to you. Cactus, Northridge, chapel and venue. I want you to personalize these for you. I want you to pretend I'm talking just to you because I am. Here's the first question. Have you ever felt lost in life? Like you need a strong and healthy dose of guidance. Guidance that can only come from outside of yourself. Yes or no? Have you ever felt lost that you needed help that has to come from outside of you? Second question, have you ever felt confused when it comes to what is true or not? And I mean true in life and with God and in your marriage and in your parenting and with the crazy culture around us, even the church you attend. Have you ever felt confused at all about things in life, yes or no? And then thirdly, have you ever experienced low energy or lack of motivation in the Christian life, simply weary and tired of fighting the good fight. You've tied a knot at the end of the rope, you're hanging on for dear life, but man, are you tired and can use an infusion of energy. Have you ever felt lethargic in life? Even as a Christian, have you ever felt any of these things? Lost, confused, low energy. I'm assuming here today, and I'm taking a little bit of a risk here, but I'm assuming that the vast majority of us will answer yes to those. Because you see, if you're tempted to answer no, then I gotta tell you, I was with a guy years ago, a fellow pastor who we were talking about these things and he basically just said, you know, I never really feel lost. I never feel confused. I never feel low energy. And I said to him, I said, well, right now I feel lonely. Because you see, when people say that to me, I just assume that either one, you're in denial, or two, you're lying, or three, to give you the benefit of the doubt, you are such a super Christian that I shouldn't even be in your presence. Because the reality is, is that most Christians feel that at times, if not more often, in their lives. And that's what Jesus is going to address here. If you don't believe me, look at verse five. We looked at verse six here, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Look at what he's responding to from the disciples. It says, Thomas said to him, this is verse five, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how do we know the way? Because Jesus just said to them, 
hey, I've been with you guys for three years. I've been teaching you everything under the sun. I've shown you the way to the Father. And then Thomas says, well, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? In other words, these are the guys that are supposed to know everything. These are the guys that are supposed to have given up everything to follow Jesus for three years of their lives. And they're lost and they're confused and they're going to scatter in about three days because they're low on energy. My point is, is that if the disciples can feel that, you and I are going to feel that. And if you can relate to this at all, and again, I'm assuming most of us can, you're now ready to receive the profundity of these spiritually formational, relationally robust words of Jesus. Because he's telling us here three life-giving things about himself as he interfaces with you. And I'm gonna give you all of these three things up front. This is a note-taker's paradise right now. I'm gonna give you all of them up front and then we're gonna walk through each one. So here's your outline all filled out. And that is that Jesus is telling us here that he shows you the way and that he reveals to you what is true and that he gives you the life that you need. This is really important. He shows you the way, he reveals to you the truth and he gives you the life that you very much long for. Let me briefly in our time remaining walk us through each one of these and what Jesus I believe is truly getting at here. First, as we've already established, Jesus shows you the way. He shows you the way. This is really rich. Uh, he says here in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the way. But one of the things that you're going to see with the three operative words that Jesus uses here, way, truth, and life, and this is really important. So if you're kind of getting lagging with me, dial in right now, is that these are really common words back 2,000 years ago when Jesus first spoke them. Over the last 2,000 years, people have tried to make more of these words than they really are. Just like the words way, truth, and life are common today for you and I, back then, they were very common words and people would have no, under, no, no they would not misunderstand at all what Jesus was trying to get at when he used them. So when he said that I am the way, he uses the Greek word, it was translated from Aramaic, but the Greek word hodos, uh, and, and this word appears over a hundred times in the New Testament, 800 times in the Old Testament, and the word simply means a pathway from point A to point B. Most of the time that this word was used in the Bible, it's used to refer to a physical road. So like I might say, if my friend Ed here, after church, Ed's going to get in his car and he's going to drive over to his house, which is west of here. And I said that Ed would go on that pathway or that road or that way. That's what this word meant back then. But there were also times that it was used figuratively of God guiding us on the right road or path in life. So check this out. This is what this word means. Psalm 1 verse 6 in the Greek version of the Old Testament says this, for the Lord knows the, say the word with me, way of the righteous. So you want to be a righteous person? Here's what you need to know. God knows the way for you. He's already laid out the path. He knows what the path is. He knows how to get you from point A to point B. Why? Because he knows the way of the righteous. And now let's go deeper in this, Psalm 25, verse 10. It says, all the paths, that's the Greek word hodos here, it's translated path, way, or road. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Whoa, 
So not only does God know the road that he has for you, but whatever road it is, and this is important, it is a loving road, it's a kind road, it's a truthful road, it's the right road for you to be on. Now, let's go even deeper in this. When Jesus picked up this word, he added this element to it. (laughs) Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way, hodos, same word in John 14, 6, the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. What's Jesus saying here? The psalmist tells us that God knows the right road for you. He tells us it's a loving road, it's a kind road, it's a truthful road. Jesus says, at times, it's going to be a difficult road. (laughs) It's going to be a narrow road. As Scott Peck would say, it's going to be the road less traveled. It's going to be the road that everybody else is not taking. But it's going to be the road that God wants you on. That's going to lead you to himself and to the life that you're looking for. It's just don't ever mistake it for an easy road. My friend Frank is here. Frank knows that back in the day I liked to hike and, uh, and, and, and I've hiked almost every trail in the Grand Tetons up in Jackson, Wyoming because uh, my, my parents used to have a place there. And uh, I've also hiked almost every trail on the backside. They don't like it, people who live on the backside of the Tetons and Driggs, Idaho, calling it the backside, but I've hiked almost every trail there. And years ago, I was with some buddies hiking some of the back trails on the uh, Idaho side of the Grand Tetons, and there was this one particular trail that we took, and I hated the name of it. It was called Devil's Staircase. We should rename it, but it was called Devil's Staircase. And the reason they called it that is because it was a very grueling trail. I'll show you a picture of it here where you hike about six miles in to the backside of the Grand Tetons, and, and then you go pretty much up at a very, very steep incline. And then you get to this spot here where there's this beautiful meadow. The only problem is you're not to the top yet. And it's really far up there. These are big trees here and small people. And so you're, you're not at the top yet. And the only way to get to the top, and let's focus in on it here, if you can get it, yeah, right here, perfect, is that you have to make your way up around here. And then, I don't know if you can see it, there's a ridge here that you have to go along and you climb along that ridge and then you have to shimmy your way up to the top here. And then you've got these beautiful views of the Teton Valley there and, and, and everything on that side of the Tetons. The very first time that I got here to take this trail, I did not do it. And the reason is, is because that trail that I just showed you at places is about one foot wide. And it's straight drop down. And I don't like heights. I don't take all that many chances because I'd rather preach than die right now. And so I, I, I just looked at that and it was in April, you know, May, and it was still kind of icy. And I said, I'm not doing it. Of course, the friends that I was with who are supposedly Christians called me a wuss. And they, uh, they, they left me down there in that meadow for about three hours. So just picture me sitting in this meadow, communing with God while my friends went up there. And as you can imagine, when they got back, they rubbed it in. They said, oh man, it was amazing. The views up there are just wonderful. And you really missed it and all of this. And I said, okay, let's go have lunch. And, uh, and, and went back. <laughs> the next year, we were going to do the same hike. And uh, I psyched myself up all year long. 
I prayed up. I even practiced looking over edges, you know. And, uh, and, 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 I, and I took the trail the next year. I did. And I did it like you'd imagine I would do it. I, I made sure, you know, that, that I was not looking off to the left. I was looking only to the right there. And kind of like Bill Murray in that movie, I was taking baby steps as it took me like three days to get up that ledge there. And I, I made it to the top and I was glad that I did because it was beautiful views and I could see what they mean. See, here's Jesus' point. The Christian life many times is going to be like that. There is a right path to the summit. There's a right path that he has for you. Apply this to your life in marriage, in parenting, with your morality, certainly with your walk with him, where he is going to show you the way. He's good for it. He's going to show you the path that he has for you. Don't forget what the psalmist said. It's the right path. It's a loving path. It's a kind path. It's a truthful path. It's just that at times it's a narrow path. And too many Christians are sitting in this meadow. Amen. Too many Christians are not where they should be up here because they're afraid of the narrow path. And you and I are better than that. You and I are people who understand that our Savior would never lead us down a path to destruction. But that doesn't mean that it's an easy path. Jesus is here to walk with you and show you the path before you. But you have to follow him even when it's not easy. He is the way. Now, for time's sake, notice with me a second life-giving thing that he says, and that is that he then reveals to you the truth. So he not only shows you the way, but he reveals to you the truth. And notice here he says that I am the truth. Now, like I said earlier, these words are very common 2,000 years ago. And this word for truth here is a word that I wrote about in my book, How Joyful People Think. In fact, I devoted the entire chapter two to just this word. It's the Greek word aletheia, or in another form, aletheis. And the word means, you're gonna love this, conforming to reality. So what is truth? Truth is simply anything that conforms to the reality of what is. So if you're a mathematician, two plus two equals, say it with me, four. It doesn't equal five because that would not conform to the reality of what two plus two really is. And so truth, no matter why you're describing it, always conforms to a certain reality. And God is all about truth. Now, I write about this in my book. What's amazing about this word aletheia is that when you trace all of its occurrences in the Bible, and this will be important for how Jesus is using it, it can refer to two different kinds of truth that are very different. It can refer either to transcendent truth the truth that God gives us from on high, the truth of who he is, what this world is about. This is universal, non-changing truth that you can't argue with. You can choose not to believe it, but it is true. It conforms to reality, no matter how you might shake it out. But then the Bible also uses the same word to describe personal truth, the truth of who you are. That's very personal to you. It's not universal, abstract, non-changing entities like out there for everybody to discover. It's just very personal to you. So let me give you a couple of biblical examples. You'll see what I mean. In Matthew 22, verse 16, a couple of the Pharisees say about Jesus, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, aletheia, and defer to no one for you're not partial to anyone. 
What are they saying? They're saying Jesus is full of transcendent truth. That the truth that Jesus gives us comes directly from God. It's for all of humanity and it's for all of us to embrace. But then notice how this word is used by Mark in Mark 5 verse 33. This is that famous scene where Jesus is in a big crowd of people. You guys remember this. And there's this woman who's had this blood bleeding disease for like a decade and she wants to be healed but she doesn't want to bother Jesus, so she figures if she just touches his garment that she'd be healed. And sure enough, she touches his garment and she can just feel inside of her uh, that she is now healed. And, and here's what, and, and then Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And it's really kind of a funny scene because the disciples say, dude, that's in the margins, dude, um, you know, you got all these people around you, like everybody is touching you. And then it says this, but the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told him, say it with me, the, the whole truth. Different use of aletheia here, don't you think? I mean, this isn't referring to transcendent truth from on high. This is that woman's truth of what just happened to her. So, so latch onto this. This is really important. Two kinds of truth the Bible talks about. God's truth and just put it this way, your truth, the truth of your circumstances, your life, what you're struggling with, where you are right now. Why is that important? Because when Jesus says, I am the truth, what he's trying to get us to see right there is that if we choose to, we can have our truth intersect with him and his truth. And that's what life is about, gang. It's learning to take the truth, all the truth of who you are, your, your good upbringing or your cruddy upbringing, your great marriage or your cruddy marriage, your, your kids that are turning out well or not turning out well, your, your job that you love or the job that you hate, the emotions that work right or the emotions that don't work right. Just think of your life right now. God says, this is so beautiful, you can take that and intersect that with the truth of who he is, his transcendent truth. Jesus says the truth. And when you do that, as I tell you guys often, spiritual sparks begin to fly. I write about this story in the book, but uh, when I was working on this book, I had a very mundane, normal experience happen to me here in church after one of the services, but spiritually, I believe it was very, very full of meaning. Uh, a single mom had come up to me after one of the services, and I know this single mom very well. I know her kids well, and uh, she was visibly distraught that day. And, and I said to her, hey, what's going on? And she said, well, uh, I knew she worked in the educational system. She said, my, my job, for various reasons, is being threatened right now. And this is huge for somebody like her because she's a single mom raising these kids on her own and this is her livelihood and it's hard to get the kind of job she had. And she explained the situation to me and said, I, I just, I, I'm just, I'm terrified because I could very well lose my job this week. And then she said this to me before I could say anything else. She said, before I could even respond, she said, you know, Jamie, I, I know that God is good and I know he's in control and I know that he's got this. I mean, this woman had been a mature Christian for years. And then she said, but this just feels so big and I'm terrified. Now, here's my question for you. How do you think the average Christian would or should respond to a woman in that situation? Unfortunately, some Christians would probably do this to her. They'd, they'd see her fear and they'd say, well, you know what? If you really believe that God is good and he is who he said he is, then you shouldn't fear because, you know, perfect love casts out all fear. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. And so, you know what? Let me read your Bible passage and hopefully we'll get rid of that fear. Can't you just see a Christian doing that? 
And yet the problem is, this woman just said that she knows who God is. She doesn't need to reaffirm that. She knows that he is good. She knows that he is sovereign. Now, you see, I saw it very different. What I saw happening here, and I see it all the time, and it's a beautiful thing when I see it, is that I saw this woman's truth, the truth of her circumstances, the truth of her single motherhood, the truth of the fear she had right now. And right in that moment in front of me, it was intersecting with God's truth, wasn't it? What do you think the Bible means when it says fight the good fight of faith? She was fighting the good fight right in front of me. You guys do it all the time. She was saying, I know what the truth is and I know who God is, but man, this feels really big. And you're in that no man's land. You don't know what to do. Here's what I've learned to do. Just help somebody stay there. Amen. Because what a lot of Christians do is they pull back from that. They, they get out of that intersection and go to safe places. They go to that meadow we were just talking about. And they retreat from God. They retreat from his presence. And I didn't want this dear woman to do that. So I did something I learned years ago that some of you should learn. And that's that when in doubt, pray. So I just put my hand gently on her shoulder. I always ask if I could. And I, I said, do you mind if I pray for you? She said, I'd love it. And I just prayed that God would keep her in that spot. And I prayed that he would obviously provide for the kids and her. And I, I prayed that she would be reaffirmed even this week of his goodness and grace and presence with her. And, and, and I just prayed for her. And the story, as I write about, has a good ending. She actually kept the job. God, who always shows himself faithful, showed himself faithful that way. But more importantly, I think we did a good thing that day keeping her in that intersection. Could it be that that's what Jesus is saying here? When he says that I am the way, I am the truth. He's saying that when your life gets crazy, even when it's not, just go to that intersection. Bathe yourself in his truth, the truth of who he is and what he is, all the things he has said to you and bring your truth to bear on that. Peter said it this way years later. He would say, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And that's what he's getting at here. But we need to allow our lives to intersect with him. Do you now see why I said earlier, some of you thought this was vanilla, but do you now see why I said earlier that these are inviting words, not fighting words? He's inviting you into the intersection of his truth in your life. So let's add up where we've come from. Jesus shows you the way, that path that is right and good and truthful and kind, but not always easy. He reveals to you the truth, his transcendent truth intersecting with your personal truth. And then finally, a bit more quickly, because we're going to our elder fund offering, Jesus gives you life. Jesus gives you life. He says, I am the life. Now, this is actually a really fun word. Some of the millennials and Gen Xers named their daughters after this word. Some of you have heard this Greek word. It's the Greek word Zoe. So you met a girl named Zoe. Beautiful, beautiful name. It means life from the Greek. And yet here's what a lot of people don't understand about the intricacy of this word. Now you need to latch on to this is that you say, okay, so it means life. <laughs> it means life as opposed to death. So when something or something one is dead, there's no life or energy flowing in them. Give me a head nod that you understand that. The Greeks understood that. They didn't have vast medical knowledge. They didn't know much about the inner workings of the body. They just knew that when there was no life in somebody, they were dead. 
So when they use this word Zoe to mean life, and when Jesus uses it figuratively, figuratively to talk about what he wants to do in our lives, he simply means, I want you alive. I want my energy coursing through your spiritual veins so that you do not feel lethargic, you do not feel demotivated, that you feel motivated and energized as you walk with me. He wants that for you. Look at how Paul, who would latch onto this in Romans, using the same word Zoe, would describe it with Jesus. He says, therefore, we have been buried with him, Jesus, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's the idea here, is that you're walking in the newness of the life that he has for you. And again, I know how some of you think, if you're being really honest with me right now, you'd say, well, Jamie, boy, that sounds really good and you seem passionate about it, but I don't have it. And I've accepted Jesus. I've walked the aisle. I got baptized and I just don't feel it. There's a reason and you're not gonna like it. (laughs) The reason that many people in America especially do not have it is because, that's what I talked about earlier, We live in such a resource-rich country. Even as Christians, we are just surrounded by all these material and entertainment things that we spend more time on those than we do really walking with Jesus who is our life. Striving to church today, I must have passed about 300 bikers on Sunday morning here in Scottsdale. I actually love it. I love biking. I love hiking and learning to love golf. Many of you know I'm a car guy, I love cars. Here's what scares me sometimes about this town and maybe any town in America, is that even I as your pastor can find myself way too consumed with those things and not enough consumed with Jesus. I know it's hard for somebody to hear, but just quantify it sometime. I don't mean to make you feel guilty, but this will. Quantify sometime. How much time you actually spend with Jesus in in personal time with him versus how much time you spend with your hobby, with your sports, at the shopping mall, or even watching a show. And you need to understand that the history of the world has not been this way. We've always had entertainment mediums, but back before we had all the things of today, they would entertain themselves maybe once or twice a week. They maybe would go to a show or they'd have the court jester come in in the medieval times or they'd do a puppet show or something like that. I mean, think of everything before the digital age. What did they do in the meantime? They would work and they would pray and they would worship and they would fellowship. And our culture today sets us up, I'm telling you, to have a very anemic spiritual life if we're not careful. So maybe this wrap up will help. It hit me this week that, that, that what's happening here in these words of Jesus are, are, are very, very profound for our lives today. And here's why. And that's that many of us deal with this tension here. We're dealing every day with the complexities of our faith in the 21st century. And along comes Jesus and he gives us clarity. And I know how some of you are feeling right now that's almost insulting Most of us are mired in the complexities of our faith. We wonder how to live our faith in the 21st century. We have intellectual concerns. We have practical concerns. You know, what to do here, what to do there, and, you know, how to raise the kids and all these things. We just have a a lot of complexity in our faith. And I get it. 
I'm mired in that with you guys. Just this week, somebody asked me a question over dinner, a a wonderful guy in our church about, you know, how the Bible came into into formation, you know, and where we got it from and all this. And it's just not a simple answer. And I find myself going on a 20-minute wonderful diatribe on, you know, the formation of the Bible through, you know, all the 5,000 Greek copies and the 300 years and the formation of the canon and, you know, why we have none of the originals, but that's okay because we have all these copies and they come in four different schools, you know, and and, and, and you can compare them together and our Greek Bible is really good. And then you got all these scholars making the American translations. And before you know it, my wife, like she's falling asleep next to me, you know, and, and it's all these complex things. And, and again, I, I'm into that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a theologian, I'm seminary trained. And that's just one issue. Let's talk about the hypostatic union, how Jesus could become fully man and fully God. Uh, let's talk about the complexities of the Trinity. Let's talk about how to raise your child. I mean, life is filled with very complex things. But here's what hit me this week. <laughs> Jesus said nothing that wasn't always absolutely clear. It's fascinating, uh, Peter at one point will write in his writings, he'll say, you know, hey, some of the things that Paul wrote you are difficult to understand. Remember that passage? You know, some of the things that Paul's writing are difficult to understand. I always laugh at that. Notice he didn't say some of the things that Jesus said are difficult to understand because Jesus never said things that were quite frankly all that difficult to understand. Could it be that Jesus doesn't want us to get mired in the complexities of our faith? as much in the clarity of who he is and what he has said to us. Some of you are really tempted to dismiss this idea of way, truth, and the life. Don't do that today. Please don't do that. He shows you the way. He reveals to you the truth. He gives you life. And though that sounds so simple, I've tried to help you see today, it's really not. (laughs) There's a lot of meat in that. And yet that's where life is found. When you feel your life getting complex, Go to the clarity of who Jesus is. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's where your spiritual bread is buttered. I promise you. Don't use this verse to club your neighbor. That's not why it was intended. It's it's intended to invite you into relationality with him. And I promise you, he will never let you down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these amazing words of Jesus that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. I could spend the rest of my life, Father, plumbing the depths of what that means just for me, let alone our church in this world. And so God, I pray that at the very, very least today, that you would have given many of us an increased thirst for Jesus, an increased thirst for this Savior, this God, this Lord who has come into our lives and promises to deliver us fully and finally to eternity. And so I pray, God, that as we deepen our trust and faith in him, that we would learn what it means to follow his way, that we'd learn what it means to intersect with his truth, that we would learn deeply what it means that he wants to give our souls life. And we realize he is the only one that can lead us to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.